My name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my... Welcome, everybody. It's time for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. Me, being Gianni Russo, the senior of the group, is the first one to introduce the lady of the group, Jeannie Riemann. Hello, everybody. So great to be back with you. And my partner in crime and uh, literary and podcast, Mr. Pat Picciarelli. Hi, everybody. Uh, you're probably going to ask me, what are we doing this evening? Yes, what are we doing this evening? <laughs> what do you should ask? Uh, we've got a, a very interesting guest. You know, I, I've, I've been on a quest for the last six months to try to find something that uh, documents organized crime in a smaller city and small town America. Uh, you know, we've been talking, uh, and we have a lot of material in New York, Chicago, LA, Miami, uh, New Orleans. We, we, we've covered it all uh, overseas, uh, Sicily, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I've, lived, I've been living in Pittsburgh, uh, the Pittsburgh area for uh, 30 years. And uh, while I, I thought I knew something about organized crime in this area, I didn't even scratch the surface. I got a hold of a book uh, that I recently read, and I said, I, I have to get a hold of the author. So our guest tonight is Paul Hodos, uh, who wrote Steel City Mafia. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'll, I'll pleasure. pleasure. Believe me. I, like he told I was me saying, a few things uh, about it. Yeah, like, now, like I, I know some people from there, but, you know, I, what you're telling us is a little like, beyond what I thought. But I knew yeah. some people I mean, it's, it's it's also beyond what, what I thought. So uh, to, to, to organize the conversation a bit, uh, Paul, could you tell us how organized crime, as everybody knows it, this was a, a, a typical uh, organized crime, uh, how it wound up and began in southwestern Pennsylvania? So... To begin with, it was like in a lot of other places. It was uh, in you know the late 1800s. There were a lot of black handers, so individual Italian criminals that were kind of controlling some of the little towns um, in Western PA. Um, and then eventually, like later 1800s, early 1900s, um, you know, gangs started to form in Pittsburgh itself, um, and some of these. Uh, Gangs, you know, joined together eventually around uh, a little before World War One, around World War One, and that's when you start you can start identifying some leaders. Uh, but it was pretty chaotic back then. Um, and then, you know, really, my book starts out in the 1920s um, when there's a little better idea of who the actual boss is of the area and the family had coalesced from, you know, those disparate groups and the black handers into something that you could call an actual mob family. Okay. As a, as a writer myself, uh, I, I was really impressed with your level of research. I mean, there's something new, practically every paragraph. Uh, can we start with the bosses from the beginning, the, uh, Matarino brothers and, yeah, uh, sure. Mike, and Mike Genovese, uh, who was, by the way, you can explain it, but no relation to Vito Genovese in New York. Sure. Sure. And so, uh, like I said, in the 20s, uh, you know, there were a few bosses and in, in the 30s, too. 
that were killed and there was a lot of violence because of prohibition and a lot of in, a lot of infighting um and then that was kind of settled um in the later 30s and then the 40s by a guy named Frank Amato senior who stabilized the family brought brought everyone under control and started making money and not headlines and then after him came one of the most famous dons which was John Rocca um and he was uh, Amato's protege and uh expanded the family's interests and uh he basically became the boss in about 1957 right around the time of Appalachian and uh his protege was Michael Genovese and Michael Genovese was uh basically his number 2 number 3 it kind of sometimes uh, roles switch up until the 1980s when Michael Genovese became the boss and then he was now, are these all immigrants in 1980 so no, so Mike Genovese was the child of immigrants. He was born in 1919. Um, John LaRocca, his mentor in organized crime, was uh, was an immigrant himself from Sicily. Um, so in in the IRS said, uh, not the IRS, the uh, border authorities at the time were trying to expel him because you know he was committing crimes and uh, you know he had come into the country illegally. They asserted. Um, he eventually beat that case, but but uh, after him, um, the leadership went to someone who was born in the United States, and uh, that was Michael Genovese. And you mentioned the Manorino brothers. They're also very important in not only the earlier history of the family, but uh, up until 1980. Um, they were the Samuel and Kelly Manorino. They were the leaders of the New Kensington faction of the family. So they, they were never actually the boss. Um, their highest ranking uh, brother was Kelly Manorino, who was underboss in the 70s. Who oversaw uh, the later families? Do you know? Like New What's York? What's that? Who oversaw those families and gave them permission to organize? Was it New York, Chicago? Yeah. So Pittsburgh fell under, from what I found, the Genovese family in New York. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, it seemed like they were pretty much on their own in those really early days I was talking about pre-prohibition. Uh, but after the commission was formed, um, they fell under what became the Genovese family. And uh, one of the bosses, his name was John Bazzano Sr. in the uh, 30s, um, actually killed some of his rivals. It was basically Pittsburgh's version of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Uh, three, three of the Volpe brothers were killed. Um, and they were big wigs in, in, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, uh, big organized crime figures back then. And uh, one of the brothers was big in organized crime up until the 1980s. And uh, when he killed those three brothers, the remaining brothers, and there were many brothers, uh, complained to the commission about him. And uh, it, was, it was their first act of sort of like uh, enforcing the rules. They called Bazzano into New York to have a dinner. And uh, he said some things that they didn't like, which uh, made them think that he was not contrite about what he had done. And they ended up uh, ice picking him to death and uh, garroting him. And then his body was found in a burlap sack in Brooklyn. Okay, what what uh, what I thought was uh, unusual was that the uh, Pittsburgh mob, before even they started expanding, didn't necessarily stick to the rules. They were taking in people to uh, work 
with the gang that uh, weren't Italians, even took them into the higher levels, so to speak. They, 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 they had some juice. And these were non-Italians. They also worked with the pagans. They also uh, uh, allowed dealing in drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, that surprised me. Now, why wasn't that controlled by New York? I mean, that's a game killer as far as, you know, somebody gets arrested. They didn't know. That's why. <laughs> that's, that's, I, <laughs> that, Paul, did they know? So I am not, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if they knew or not. But uh, New York did, the two things that I saw that New York kept control over during the time that I looked at in the book uh, were how many people were in the family, so how many made members they had. Uh, there was a, a limit on on how many they could have. And then also when they could make guys. Like I know that uh, the leadership in the 80s had to consult with the Genovese family when they were about to make people. Now, well, who they made was kind I, of up to them. I know a little more than the most people about the commission. With what you're saying, the commission always dictated when you open your books, and when you could take people in. And it was done by earnings or you did some big favors like murder. So th- those rules never changed. It wasn't state to state. If you, the commission had to oversee it, unless you wouldn't have got the booze for doing prohibition to begin with. And you would never got organized. They would have wiped you out. They had to have control. So I mean, it's it's wild that they did that in those, in those suburbs so far away. Well, they seem. Well, it's not that far away. It's a it's a, it's a seven hour drive. It's not really that far. But, but considered the Midwest, but that's a stretch. Uh, the drug dealing uh, was fairly m- much in the open. I thought. But what what was the attitude, Paul? I mean, what was the, were they trying to hide it? I mean, everybody was involved in drugs. Sanctions. So, so they really weren't trying to hide it. Um, I will say this. So, according to and I I interviewed. A law enforcement guy who was the handler for one of the leading drug drug guys who was also a made member, and he told me that um, that his source had told him that Michael Genovese really did not like drugs, uh, but that he basically was looking the other way when people were handing him that money. He knew it was coming from them. He was a smart guy. There's no way he didn't know, uh, but that he was opposed to it. It's sort of in principle and also with the danger it would pose to his family members and him. What but was that, by the 50s? It was just too, too much to resist. Was that by the 50s and 60s? No, the, the drugs really came into their own, I, in, I'd say in the late 70s and then really in, in the 1980s. It, the Coke craze uh, was, was a big deal for them. Well, see, in um, the 50s and 60s, money. it started in New York and then slowly... People knew, like you said, they turned a blind eye to it, and even the even the, the Gotti family did that with Peter. I mean, it was just too much money yeah, to let right. go. Okay, uh, Paul, to expand on what Gianni said about opening the books, yeah, New York mm-hmm. controlled uh, when the books could be opened, but as far as Pittsburgh was concerned, and apparently New York agreed that they didn't have any say in who got made. That that is what that is what I've seen um, in in some of the sources I used uh, is that they had control over who who they were making and that 
I don't know that New York would even know who these people were, to be honest with you, because uh, obviously a lot of them were just local guys. But, uh, you know, and the one that you referred to that was real, the real outlier is Chucky Porter, who eventually became the underboss. And he was uh, at, at least half Irish, um, you know, half Italian, possibly 75 percent. Um, that's what he claimed, um, uh, Italian and then 25 Irish. Uh, but the difference being, uh, and I know that there have been other people who have been made who have had that mixed ancestry, but their, you know, their name is usually an Italian name. For Porter, it was that that Irish name. And he was um, made. And he was made, and he became yeah. the second in command. Yeah, that, that, that's that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm surprised that New York didn't hear about this. I mean, they were they were causing quite a stir. I mean, there was bodies dropping everywhere. Uh, the, the level of violence per capita, I think, was a lot more severe here than it was in uh, New York with the five families. When you I think mean, about, yeah, when you think about some of the crews, like uh, especially the Youngstown crew, when they had that war with Cleveland over Youngs over the Youngstown, Ohio rackets, um, you know, nine nine or ten people were killed there. Um, you know, in, including uh, a civilian who was mistaken for. Uh, a mobster. And, uh, and you look at that and you're like, man, that, that body count is like very close to what happened in the Colombo war. And it was this basically over this pretty, pretty small town yeah. um, compared to the bigger cities in the U S yeah, but Ohio had a major, major family there. They, they're still there. It's, it, yeah. they, they had a lot of control making a lot of money too. Yeah. Cle Cleveland was, was a powerhouse for sure. And, you know, and, and, there's a movie out there about the Cleveland family that, uh, and their war with Danny Green, an Irish mobster. Um, oh, yeah, I, that, that Danny Green was the guy they allegedly couldn't kill. They, they eventually, yeah, this guy had cars were blowing up, and this guy left and right. He never died. <laughs> I mean, he was yeah, yeah, until they finally got him uh, yeah. in the, in the late seventies. He was it's after a dentist appointment. They finally got. I him. talked to Joe Sudar once a month, just so you know he's alive. And well, <laughs> you know, they, they also had uh, scams that were rather innovative. Uh, uh, I was reading in your book, there was a baby selling scam, uh, which I thought was pretty yeah. innovative. Uh, and and it, for the uh, for the for the mob to get involved in something like that was something new. I mean, this never happened in New York. They weren't actually selling babies. They were selling the idea of buying babies, but they never came through. If, if you could explain how that worked. Yeah, so it was a scam uh, with one of the members who also eventually became pretty high up um, in the 1980s. And him and a few accomplices were basically defrauding people who were desperate to adopt babies and telling them they could they could get some for them. You know, uh, luckily, and I'm I'm glad they weren't actually doing it. They 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 didn't actually have the babies. They were, but they were defrauding these desperate people. It was just scam. That's all it was. Yeah, yeah, it was a scam. I, I thought I thought it was pretty innovative, and uh, and this went on for a while. This wasn't just a couple of kids. That's I mean, they. Oh yeah. That's still going on. People people doing that, scamming people for, for desperate people for babies. Yeah. yeah, but it seems it seems out of character for the mafia to get involved. Oh, right. Well, it wasn't the mafia you're talking about. They, the whole organization condoned it. It was a, gr a group of guys and created a scam. Yeah, but you know they were they, they were given life by by 
by uh, the Genovese family in, in, in New York. They basically controlled them to a certain extent. Uh, I'm sure they didn't know that was happening. That's all. That I happened. know. Yes. Yeah, so they didn't have much control. I yeah. mean, uh, uh, they, they got very powerful. Uh, and this is what surprised me, uh, that the amount of power they had, they started to expand uh, outside of Pittsburgh. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Paul? Yeah, so uh, in the earlier years, um, it, they were they were definitely confined to uh, the Pittsburgh geographic area, um, and then you know, I, I'd say possibly as early as the '40s, but you really have a lot of good evidence for the 1950s and into the '60s. You know, as I said, they start moving to Youngstown. Youngstown is kind of an open city and there's a lot of different families that play in there you have some detroit people buffalo people of course cleveland people mm -hmm. um and uh you know there's a little bit of a bombing war there um not a lot of people die there there are some pretty terrible incidents uh but there's a lot of what i would call message bombings you know they blow up a guy's car when he's not in it that kind of thing if they favor uh, car bombs uh if, if, if i have this right uh Joey uh, Naples, I believe it was, invented the mm -hmm. remote control for a car. Yeah, one of his associates, uh, <laughs> uh, basically uh, a, a guy with some tech savvy, I guess, back in the 60s, um, and this was in an FBI report. He was actually bragging about it to an FBI agent who was talking to him, um, just like an on-the-street interview. He wasn't an informant. He was just talking to him. Um, and he was like, yeah, you know, I got to be careful one of my guys built me this thing and I can stand a block away and start my car up. And it, and then if it blows up, I know that somebody's trying to get me. She took too bad. He didn't patent it. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I mean, it's uh, who, who would think that uh, a remote car starter uh, was invented by, by organized crime, but that, that, that was uh, As a life-saving device. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'll have to tell my cute mom that when she goes to open her car, I'll say you There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why your mother's got problems? <laughs> oh, oh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna scare her. <laughs> no, my mother is the most straight arrow you've ever met. She's wonderful. So I've got a question, Paul. What what yeah. got you started and interested in this? So I'm um, I'm from that area originally. Um, I haven't lived there for a long time, but uh, but I, I grew up in uh, I was born in a city called Johnstown, and that's where most of my family still lives. Most of my older relatives, um, and uh, that was the place where one of the mobs crews was in, a, a very quiet crew uh, led by uh, Joe Regino, who was friends with the the Don that I was talking about earlier, John Laraca. Him and him and John LaRocca used to go down and vacation with their wives down in Florida together. And uh, so it was a quiet place for the mob. There's only one murder that I found in that city itself. Um, but I heard a few stories from my grandfather um, who he wasn't Italian, but he, you know, he worked at the steel mills and all that. So he knew some of those stories that went around. And like uh, the one man who was killed was tangentially related to him he was uh married to one of his cousins um so like the one hit that actually happened in johnstown was something that he knew a little bit about um and uh there's another book that 
it's called Small Time that this New York Times bestselling author Rush Shorto wrote that's about Johnstown and the crew back in the 1960s. Um, my book's focused more on the modern mafia, but uh, I do get into that history too. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it was that and just reading about the Porter trial, uh, uh, you know, when I was basically a kid. And uh, that was a big organized crime trial in Western PA. And, uh, and just, you know, seeing some of those machines and different bars and pizza places that we would go to and uh, wondering where, is, where did that stuff come from, the Joker poker and all that. Um, and then later on, I found out where it came from. You know, funny you, should, uh, funny you should bring that up. You and I had a talk this afternoon before the show. Uh, you you mentioned a, a, a name in the book, John Duffy Connolly, mm-hmm. uh, involved uh, with, with the, the Pittsburgh O.C. family. Uh, he was a friend of mine. Uh, when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. Uh, I wasn't trying to meet anybody either. I came here to write and... Uh, uh, and somehow I gravitate to these people <laughs> or they gravitate to me. This was a guy we just started talking in a bar one night or no, it was in a restaurant. Uh, mm-hmm. I was at a table. He was at another table and he turned around to me and says, you have an accent. And I said, I don't have an accent. You people have accents. And he, he got a laugh out of that. We started talking and I, he couldn't have been more than he's in his thirties. Uh, I, I would mm-hmm. think. No. Wow. Uh, we became friends and he said, uh, you know, naturally, you know, the first question out of, uh, out of anybody's mouth or, or soon is, what do you do? So, uh, and this is a, this is a couple of uh, meetings after we went out to dinner and he introduced me to a couple of people and he said, uh, I'm, 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 I'm into gambling machines, joker poker like that. And I figured, well, this is harmless. You know I mean? I'm thinking about wh- where I come from. Uh, if you wanted to, to to do anything like that, you had to get permission. There had to be rules. Uh, people got cuts. Mm-hmm. Here, it didn't seem to be much of that. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it depends. You had to have some friends, but it was kind of loose. How many he years put, ago are you talking? 30. No, 25. Oh, so, I mean, him, so I can, I, when you said he was only 30... So yeah, that's well, that was 25 no, years ago. Okay. Well, that was, well, was back then. That's just what I'm talking. And he was, and I figured, well, this, this you know, kid has maybe a, a, a you know half a dozen machines somewhere because a lot of people have choker poker machines in their bars and they're either privately owned or somebody sells them one. But this guy turns out had a fairly big operation. So he's approached by the FBI and uh, he said, listen, get all your machines out of all the bars you have. Because he was telling me this. And uh, and he said uh, there won't be any 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 prosecution. There was, must have been some kind of uh, political stuff involved. They wanted to joke a poker machines out of all the bars in Pittsburgh, and he had the majority of them. He was pretty big, so he basically told them to go screw themselves. And he's telling me this story, and he's laughing. He said, "What are these gambling machines? What can they do to me?" Well, you know what they did to him. Got thirteen years in the federal penitentiary for joke a poker machines. Holy cow. Thirteen years. Hope he made a lot of money. <laughs> he was making, he was making scads of money, but I didn't get to spend it. I mean, uh, once he went in, what was that in the can to come out when he got so he had a nice thing? Well, you know, I I, I asked uh, uh, Paul about that. Has you know has the guy surfaced anywhere? Uh, Paul, you you heard that he passed away? I, it's it's a possibility. I unfortunately I didn't get to look it up before I got to the show. He's definitely a, a more minor player in my book. Uh, yeah. that I I didn't dig into him a lot. Uh, but he definitely was affiliated with some of the guys, uh, based on some of the documents I've seen. 
um, and uh, and some of the reporting in the newspapers, um, you know, he was probably making millions off that business you were talking hey, well, about. You know, and, and, and it's, it sort of surprised me. I said, if this is what southwestern Pennsylvania organized crime is like, this has to be very low key. And you know, actually, uh, you know, you, uh, your book wasn't around and I wasn't really interested mm-hmm. in researching. He seemed like a, an overgrown college jock to me. That was that was my attitude. And the guy winds up with thirteen years. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, How old would he be now if he if he if he is alive? Yeah, I'm going to check it out. I mean, I like the guy. It was a nice. So what guy. would you think? I'm saying. What do I think? How I old no would idea. he be? He would be uh, probably is what I'm assuming. Five. Yeah. Well, not an old man. I, I have to check it. I have friends who who are more friendly with him than I was. Uh, from this relationship, I also got invited to. A house by a guy by the name of Repepi. Can you tell us about him, Paul? Oh yeah. Okay. So uh, Antonio Repepi uh, yeah. was really one of the oldest members of the family, and you know, once again, according to FBI docs and newspaper articles and few interviews I've done, and he uh, he was around for a very long time. I mean, like from the Black Hand days up until. And I'm not staring at my book right now, but he died in like the late 80s, early 90s. So he was like in his late 80s, in, in his 90s when he well, I, uh, I, it, and he it, seemed I, to be still active. up in the uh, Yeah, he was he was active. They also owned a very big winery uh, in this area. But uh, this uh, gets a little complicated. Here. The first book I wrote, I self-published, as some of us do when we're, when we're breaking into the business. And the yeah. woman signed my book cover, who I didn't know. I happened to, to uh, uh, meet her in a in a supermarket. She says she's an artist. Things lead to things. She designs the cover of my book. And then I didn't see her anymore. And so she calls me one day and she says, uh, Mr. Repepi wants to meet you. And I don't know who Mr. Repepi was. So uh, yeah. I well, why should I do this? She says, well, he's, he's very influential in the area. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, John, uh, John Connolly thinks highly of you, and he just wants to meet you. And I'm probably thinking this was the elder Repepi because this was an old man, and this was yeah. probably 92. So I, I go to his house. It's a palatial mansion. The place was beautiful. And uh, uh, he's got a wing of the house. He was a big game hunter, uh, very active big game hunter. He had walls festooned with every animal you can think of and some you couldn't even think of. I mean, it had to be 50 heads, rhinoceros, wow. long elephants i mean you name it i spent the whole afternoon with this guy and and this and this woman and and i think his son who uh, they never brought up anything about anything you know they just were talking yeah. about yeah, thing and uh they're very very uh low-key polite yes you know you, you you can tell when somebody knows how to charm somebody you know they ask you more questions about you than uh you know and everybody likes to talk about themselves but i recognize it right away i mean you know, they're just trying to be friends. Uh, but Probably took you on the job down there, undercover. <laughs> no, believe me, they knew who I was before I even... Uh, I'm uh, saying that, but they probably thought maybe he was doing a special... Uh, they, knew I, they knew I was retired. With it. I, I, the guy just, he liked to read. <laughs> you know, uh, what I, did I, he want? I, I, I what forgot... Did he want? Just to be that? a friend? What did he end up wanting? Was he just wanted to be your friend? Just wanted, just wanted to socialize. Last time I ever saw the guy... And uh, as Paul is saying, this is in the early 90s. He, 
I probably left and he died the next week. I mean, he was an old guy. Yeah, it's probably close to it. No, I'm yeah. saying so. You only met him once. Met him once. That's, That's it. it. Yeah, that was. And I didn't know, you know, like I said, I didn't know who the hell he was. Afterwards, I I asked around. I said, "Oh yeah, he's an old gangster." And I'm looking around and figuring, well, I I I I still didn't grasp the the uh, the size of uh, and the involvement of organized crime in this area. You couldn't go any place to do anything. Southwestern PA in the small towns are big, big gambling towns. Uh, I mean, the high stakes poker games, uh, big money bet. Uh, in the movie The Hustler, when the movie starts, Paul Newman and his handler are on their way to uh, New York to play Minnesota Fats. And the opening scene is that they're going to stop somewhere to get something to eat, get a couple of drinks. And they walk into a bar and there's a pool table. There's pool tables in every bar around here. And of course, it's Paul Newman. He's a hustler. And he winds up uh, uh, beating whoever he's, he's playing out of all, all kinds of money. The scene only lasts for maybe seven minutes. That scene was shot in this town. And this was a big pool hustling area for many, many years. The best players in the world would come to Manesson, Pennsylvania to gamble. Something else I never knew. And that's where you live, right? That's where I live. I remember I mean, putting out a so Christmas card. Or there's something. more bookies now in this town, uh, I, I, I think, than there are cops. I mean, you know, everybody's a bookie. I mean, it's kids in their 20s are taking book, old people. I bought my house from a bookie. Is that currently? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, she, it, was, it, 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 it was a female bookie. It had a big operation, was oh, married wow. to a, 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 a police lieutenant. And I, they know, I bought the house from, from the Bolton, but believe me, it was her money. Cops around here don't make any money. Uh, and big corruption problems. And that's why I found your book so fascinating, Paul, because you, you got mm -hmm. into, the, into the dirt. Uh, you mentioned something. I'm trying to uh, find it in my notes. Uh, oh, yeah, cops, uh, the organized crime was running uh, bingo games, but they always did. But they were in partnership with cops. Yeah, so... At, at times, there were partners, and then if you go back to their really early history that we were mentioning before, too, they were also competitors. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why the family back in the earlier days wasn't as powerful as it as uh, other mafia families were at that same time period is because politicians and the cops in Pittsburgh were running their own operations back then, you know, for booze and gambling. Um, so there was competition early on, and then later on, you know, they you know, they became uh, partners and like, especially the best evidence is in Youngstown because that crew got completely taken down in the 90s. Um, and a lot of people flipped and it was a lot of good information came out. But they own Youngstown and uh, they own they the the made guy who was there, his name was Lenny Strollo, was appointing, you know, police officers, basically. Wait, can, we, uh, can we take a break here? Because uh, we're a little bit overdue on going. To a word from our sponsor. John, you want to take us there, please? I'll be right back. Now, don't go anywhere. We know where you live. And you know we do. We'll be right back. This is Patrick Piccarelli, co-host of the Hollywood Godfather podcast. I'm also the president of Condo Security and Investigations, a full-time investigative and security firm established in 1988. We are located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with worldwide affiliates. Our business paradigm is simple. 
to provide the most professional services possible while maintaining an ethical standard and client satisfaction. Our areas of expertise include criminal and civil investigations, asset searches, surveillance, executive protection, question documents, background investigations, computer forensics, polygraph, and many other services. Our staff consists of former law enforcement professionals with hundreds of years of combined experience. Your initial consultation is free. Visit our website, www.condorprivateeye.com or call 724-396-2808. Thank you. Okay, we're back. Okay, Paul, on, on, on that line, you're talking about cops. Uh, one small town police department. I live in an area where there's, where there's five towns and you can walk to any one of them. They're really small and they're all they're really crammed together. One police department was a burglary ring when I lived here, when I first moved here. Mm. And, uh, the cops, I don't know if it was the entire department, but the entire department was maybe 15 or 20 cops anyway. So it was yes. a majority of the department. Yeah. The guy that was running it was a police sergeant uh, who was murdered in his bed while wow. I was shot in the head uh, about two years after I moved here. Uh, so there was a lot of stuff going on with the uh, cops and uh, organized crime figures. Uh, so uh, Henry Zatola, mm -hmm. share with us who he was. So he was uh, someone who came to the attention of the family, like the 60s, 70s. Um, he started appearing in the sort of like documents and newspaper articles in the 70s. Um, but he was uh, a longtime associate of the family. Um, like everybody else, uh, you know, he was involved in gambling enterprises. Um, I haven't seen so much on the uh, drug side for him. Um, and I I believe, uh, given the document I've done, that he was probably the guy, the last made guy in Pittsburgh. The one who was made last, I should say, um, the, not the last made guy to die uh, in Pittsburgh, but the the last one who was made probably around 1989 or so. Um, it's a little sketchy on that. Um, and uh, the FBI uh, FBI guys from that time, they fully admit that he was a part of the family, but they, they didn't really know about any ceremony that he was a part of. So they officially still consider him an, an associate, um, the ones that I talked to. Um, like I said, I believe he was actually made because he was over the gentleman that I talked about in Youngstown, Lenny Strollo. He was uh, the person who collected the money from the made guys and associates in Youngstown and allegedly brought it over to the boss, Mike Genovese, um, giving him his cut every every few weeks. Um, and uh, he took a management role in Youngstown, uh, for sure. What was the uh, Rincon Tribal Council? Uh, so the the Rincon uh, tribe is a is an Indian tribe that's out in uh, the San Diego area. If you've ever been to San Diego, there's a lot of desert around there. Well, how, um, how, how did how did uh, organized crime from Pittsburgh area wind up with the uh, Rincon. Sure. So in the 90s, um, they were looking for a good outlet to launder their, their millions of dollars in gambling profits. Um, and uh, there was this Rincon Casino out near San Diego was uh, desperate for basically a management company so they could open their casino back up 
Um, their casino had been shut down in the in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, because the Chicago family was involved in it and uh, an investor, basically. And uh, a lot of people got arrested um, and the casino was shut down. And then they went looking for uh, new takers and the Pittsburgh group came came knocking. Um, so they, they have bad luck with uh, investors. And uh, Do you know they, what what's that? Do you know when that happened? Yeah, so it, the, this whole scheme happened in the mid '90s, so just a few years after the Chicago family got kicked out. Well, um, you know who, well who that was, right? It was Tony Accardo, just so you know. Oh, oh, for for the <laughs> leadership of the Chicago, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they um, had cheat on him; he couldn't go out of his house. <laughs> there it, was there was a woman involved in this, a Ruth Callick. Yeah, Ruth Kallak was the tribal representative, and uh, the Pittsburgh family tried to hide behind this group called the Columbia Group that was supposedly a group of uh, legit investors from the Pittsburgh area. And uh, your your old friend Conley was actually mentioned in this case as, as one of those possible investors. And basically, uh, this uh, Henry Zatola went out. He was kind of the lead on this, and him and another made guy from Ohio named Pasquale Ferruccio who was also in the Pittsburgh family that he was the Ohio faction. And, uh, they went out there and, uh, they paid off Ruth Kallak. And, uh, so she looked the other way, accepted their investment. Um, they were able to open up a casino, but it only operated for one full day with the Joker poker machines because they, one day, one day, yeah. <laughs> one day in one day in a row. What, what and, kind uh, of investment was that? <laughs> Even Bugsy Siegel had a better run than that. Basically, the government was on to them while the scheme was going on. And uh, oh, wow. uh, the Joker poker machines were illegally obtained and they, they took them out of the casino. So the casino actually stayed open for a few months, but without Joker poker, it wasn't making any money. So that one day they were at full capacity. The other days they just had card games basically and bingo. So they, it didn't they, also, they had a woman spy in the FBI also. They uh, did. Which is gold. Uh, her name was uh, Jacqueline Weinard. Weimard. Weimard. And, uh, yeah, so she uh, just, it's kind of an accident the way it happened. Uh, uh, she was dating a guy named John Carabo, who she had met at a bar. And he was an associate of the family. And once he found out what she did, he started to pump her for information and they went out for a few years. Um, and then uh, it was from like, I think 1982 to 1985. Not to use was, the pun, but that's a lot of pumping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for like three years, she was given information, like handing over documents and telling them things. She was the secretary for the organized crime squad. Um, and then they eventually figured out there was a leak because uh, people were lamming it before they would arrest them and things like that. And, you know, one of the more infamous guys, a guy named Nick Blasquale, uh, got tipped off through that Weimar pipeline and uh, ran off to Jamaica before he was picked up. He, they eventually picked him up later. But but uh, stuff like that put him on to the fact that somebody was given information and they figured out it was her and she got arrested in 1985. Um, well, as What's she, that? She did, she, she did jail time? No, uh, she got probation from what I understand. Her boyfriend did go to prison for a few years, uh, but she was fired and just got probation. So she got off kind of easy. I'll say. 
that would no happen. pension though. That's that's a big thing. Yeah, yeah. no pension. Uh, yeah. In in the movie Goodfellas, at at the end when uh, the Henry Hill character uh, starts to get jammed up, he's using a lot of coke. He's selling uh, coke behind his, his his boss's back. He keeps referring to his Pittsburgh connection. I just thought that was something that they stuck in the movie because it sounded good. But this was real. He was dealing with a guy named Nick the Blade. Yeah. The, the guy that I just mentioned, uh, his name is Nick the Blade, just Wale. His real name was Eugene. Um, he got the moniker the Blade because he liked to use a knife uh, during fights with people. Um, and he was, uh, especially to the agent that I was talking to, um, basically the guy that they love to hate. He was, you know, kind of an enforcer type. Uh, definitely a drug dealer um, and uh, and somebody who was famous within the family. Um, you know, everybody knew who he was um, because of how violent he was and because of how flashy he was. He had a Jaguar that he drove around. He was very much someone who didn't, who wasn't sort of the archetypal Pittsburgh mobster. He, uh, he was super flashy and, uh, and in your face all the time. Um, and it was only a matter of time before he got arrested, but he managed to keep out of jail for quite a while, for like 10, 15 years, really, uh, by intimidating witnesses. And, uh, you know, there, there's one story I have in the book where a guy lodged an assault charge against him. And uh, there's a story that uh, Nick the Blade tried to basically hit him with his car and then he jumped out, fired a few shots at him and then. You know, told him like, "Hey, you you better you better drop that charge, or I'm gonna kill you." Basically, and and he did. Um, and uh, he was the handbook and the John Gotti handbook about witnesses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and he was the Pittsburgh connection. Um, I'm I'm not sure that he directly met with Henry Hill, but uh, one of Nick the Blade's associates who was in his drug enterprise was a guy named Paul Maisie, and uh, and he was the one who was kind of the connection with Henry Hill. Directly. I, 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 I knew Henry basically brought up in the same Queens neighborhood, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm wondering how he got that, that Pittsburgh connection. I mean, that could be all kinds of reasons how, how he managed to meet him, but to go all the way to Pittsburgh for Coke, that's a hell of a trip. <laughs> yeah. It, if I'm remembering correctly, he knew Paul Maisie from somewhere. I'm forgetting the exact story, but Paul Maisie had connections on the East coast itself. Um, and, and they, maybe, maybe they met in prison or something like that. I'm sorry. I can't remember that specific detail, but it, it was through Maisie that he was able to get Jezuale's drugs. Okay. You know, we have gone through the, uh, the, uh, inception of the mob, the rise of the mob and the expansion of the mob, uh, from the, uh, uh, from the Pittsburgh area, South and West into Youngstown, Cleveland. Uh, we'd like to have you back next week, if that's okay with you, uh, to talk about uh, from you know uh, all these mob organizations eventually, or some of them do anyway, wind up reaching a pinnacle. It's like in uh, uh, New York was probably the 80s. Then everything started to go downhill. They're still around, of course. But yeah. next week, I think uh, our listeners would like to hear how they started to degenerate and how the, it actually came to an end uh, as, as far as organized crime as we know it, or like I'd like to call it around here now is a disorganized crime. The last May guy 
It was actually a last-made guy in this area. So uh, we'd be very uh, uh, interested in having you back next week. And uh, thank you for, for, for being on the show tonight. And we're looking forward to part two. Definitely. Thank you. Hey, tell us the name of your book one more time before we sign up. It's uh, Steel City Mafia, Blood Betrayal, and Pittsburgh's Last Dawn. And where 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 could we get those books or our audience? So anywhere you uh, can buy books online, especially Amazon um, and my publisher's website, it's the History Press. And then you can also find them in stores in Western Pennsylvania if you live there, um, and Eastern Ohio. So, all right. Well, Barnes and Noble. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Paul. And we'll be seeing you next week. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. And that was that. And I'll be back. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Do you have a question for the mailbag? We love hearing from our fans and answering questions about past or future episodes, your favorite celebrities, or anything you'd like to know. Submit your questions online at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com or you can call us at 646-776-3038 and leave us a message. Who knows, your question may even make it on the air. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and at Real Gianni Russo. If you like our show and you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on your podcast or video streaming service. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Now we'll be back next week with a new exciting show and who knows who may be joining us. Until next time. Never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.